0: Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report 24. 24 is my favorite number, but that also means it's been 24 days exactly in a row without missing one of these daily morning live streams, not even just market live streams, given that we do them on the weekends as well. (laughs) So welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. A lot to talk about today with some catalysts coming up. Uh, Ford, we want to start off with Ford. Apparently, they have three shifts going, or should I say had, three shifts going a day, three working crews, a seven-day a week for their F-150 Lightning project, and apparently now they have paused all production on the F-150 line, specifically because they have discovered a potential problem with the electric battery system. Not so great for Ford. A lot of people rely <laughs> on those F-150s for Ford as investors to make sure Ford can actually prove itself as a company that can drive revenue and not just revenue, but also potentially gross margins in EV. So far, gross margins in EV have been elusive for Ford. Ford does not expect to be profitable on its electric powertrain platform until 2026. Now, what's most remarkable about this is you're starting to realize the industry finally, years later, is recognizing, crap, we do have to go all in on EVs, including what we learned yesterday, where the CEO of Toyota, Mr. Toyoda, with a D, was first saying, ah, we're just going to stick with hybrids. We want to give people a choice. And then if you stick with hybrids and give people a choice, that means not, no necessary real investments into autonomy or self uh, self-driving, certainly not, or electric vehicle platforms. And what happened within a month of him saying that? Bye-bye. <laughs> He's getting the boot, and now they're getting the new CEO who wants to rejigger the entire company and uh, bring Toyota into a world of electric vehicles, also hopefully by 2026. Kind of interesting to see that that sort of, like, lag. And I think it's phenomenal, actually, for, for companies that are making the first mover advantages. I, I think it's excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, um, Uh, All right. So let's go ahead and uh, let's see what else we have here. We have, so that is what we've got for four. Uh, This was an interesting piece. Remote work apparently is costing Manhattan $12 billion a year. That's pretty crazy. $4,661 per worker being spent in the city less per year Times about 2.7 million people coming in to commute, looking at roughly $12 billion of less money being spent in Manhattan now, post-pandemic. Yikes, it's not so great for, uh, for Manhattan or for, uh, for New York. But uh, then again, some of that money might be flowing over to uh, uh, other areas, whether it's Buffalo or Brooklyn or, uh, yeah, who, who knows? Jersey, maybe. So the money will probably still get spent somewhere, but that's a, that seems like a, a dent for New York City. Uh, you know, I also, I wanted to take a moment, uh, to clarify uh, that today, uh, we'll be flying again, which is really exciting. We've actually got some interviews lined up well, uh, over the next few days, including today, We'll be interviewing the, uh, the executives over at Boxable, so that'll be really entertaining. And uh, we've also got some real estate to check out, so I'll be in Utah and Nevada later today and then back tonight. Uh, I wanna make it very clear to, because I, apparently people can't get that through their heads, uh, but <laughs> that's, a, that's very few people. I think most people understand it. But I wanna make it very clear, uh, again, in case it's not, that if you follow me on Instagram where you see my YouTube videos and we're flying around, I wanna be very clear that Me, as in Meet Kevin is paying for uh, my flights and my travel so I can be the best potential CEO possible uh, for our housing startup. It's not like raising money and then paying to fly around in a jet. That'd be ludicrous. Uh, So uh, I wanna be very clear about that. So uh, anyway, uh, we're also going through, which is great, uh, the next set of release of audited financials, which will align with our Reg A. Uh, And for those of you wondering, for the startup, HouseHack, HouseHack.com, the solicitation's there. For those of you wondering, the uh, latest uh, audit will go through December 31st. So the first audit was our formation audit and our initial raise audit. Next one goes through December 31st. And the SEC will be probably going through both of them, we expect. Uh, And so we hope to be Reg A approved by uh, hopefully April. Uh, I I don't think earlier is is, uh, a reasonable expectation, but hopefully by April. And uh, what's also very fascinating is that 10-year treasury yields have continued to move up. Uh, uh, Today, they're stable, which kind of gives, it it really gives time for shopping for real estate, which is fantastic uh, from a buying point of view. Excuse me. Anyway, uh, so that that gives you a little bit of an update on that, which I I, I think is pretty exciting. So so yeah. Okay. So then uh, that is a a brief update on that. So probably looking at April, uh, maybe worst case May for something like that. So uh, then what else do we have? Then we've got uh, three questions that regularly come up. Uh, A lot of people commenting TD. I think TD reports after. Let me see here. I'll look really quick trade desk i knew they do report today but i was pretty certain they report after but then again i've been wrong in the past and i could be wrong right now so we'll see but yeah trade desk is a company that i believe is reporting today and they uh hmm, never mind they already reported they reported in the am oh that's fantastic oh my gosh they're up 12 (laughs) percent that's awesome Uh, Wow, that's pretty incredible. So Trade Desk apparently up 12% here in the pre-market. That's phenomenal. And uh, Trade Desk reported 24% revenue growth, reporting a $700 million buyback, issues upbeat Q1 outlook. Good lordy. This is incredible. Oh, that's that's really impressive. Good job. Uh, this is uh, this just came in here too, not too long ago. EPS comes in at 38 cents, beats the 36 cent estimate. Sales of 4.91 compared to 4.90.5 uh, for the estimate. I have to say, I was getting a little nervous about uh, because of the leading indicators in, it, in advertising. Amazon suggesting advertisings down. You had Microsoft suggesting advertisings down. Google was obvious that advertising was down. Disney advertising down, Netflix advertising down, like a, a regular linear TV advertising down. Every single leading indicator for Trade Desk was giving red flags. And then they beat. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Airbnb. Uh, anyway, so uh, that's crazy. That is really, really incredible. So congratulations to anyone in Trade Desk. It's super cool. All right. So one of the uh, questions I keep getting uh, has to do with people beginning in real estate. So three questions you want to avoid, or I shouldn't say that you want to avoid, but three three things that you should definitely pay attention to in real estate. Let's let's rephrase that. How about? Here are three stupid things you should never do if you are a brand new home buyer. Now, what I'm doing is every day I'm going to try at the beginning of my market live streams where we hang out around 4.30 in the morning, I'm gonna try to provide uh, three sort of little bits of financial suggestions for you. I am a licensed financial advisor, real estate broker as well. This isn't personalized advice for you, but I wanna try to give three solid pointers that I think can help you build your wealth. And so sort of bring it to the basics, right? Uh and so three stupid things that almost all home buyers start with are things we're going to address here. The very first thing that you should pay attention to is the down payment. In my opinion, the worst thing people could do is save up 20% down for a home in America. The reason for that is our government via Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans provides us 30 year fixed rate loan options where you could put. 3% down and potentially even get your down payment covered by calling up a local community development corporation. So just type into Google, Ventura County Community Development Corporation, or whatever county you're in, and look for potentially down payment assistance options to help you even with that 3 to 5%. Now, a lot of people get angry at me when they say, wait a minute, why shouldn't you save up 20% for a home? Then you don't have to pay mortgage insurance. So let's break this down in two ways. Number one, When you save up 20% for a home, the odds are you're probably not going to be buying a home out of college or in your first job. So you're probably not buying a home before you're 25. Realistically, you're probably not going to buy or be ready to have 20% down until you're in your 30s. And the downside about being in your 30s is once you're in your 30s, you might already have a significant other. You might even already have children. I'm 31 and I already have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. I don't have a baby anymore. I don't even have a toddler anymore. But I bought my first home when I was 19 because I bought that home with 3.5% down, an FHA loan. You have to live in the property, obviously, to put any less than 20% down. Generally, if you're an investor in residential real estate, you're going to put a minimum of 25% down. And if you're an investor in commercial real estate, you're generally going to put 35% down. But for home buyers who agree to live in the property for at least a year, they can put down three, three and a half, five, 10%, doesn't matter. If you're a veteran, you can actually go as far as putting zero money down. And so why is it important to think about getting into real estate earlier? Well, the problem with saving up that down payment is that by the time you actually do save up a 20% down payment, your housing needs have dramatically changed generally. See, if you're 18 to 24, you could get by with buying a studio or a one-bedroom, one-bath house, something really small, well beneath your means. doesn't have to be a dream home. In fact, you might even pay less for the property to buy than you might pay to rent, especially if you end up getting, let's say, a three-bedroom home and then you rent out two of the rooms and you essentially old school house hack, right? By renting out the rooms. Say your mortgage is 200 bucks, you rent out two rooms for 700 bucks. Now, all of a sudden, you're only paying $600 to live there. Plus, of course, some incidentals. So in my opinion, starting when you're younger without familial obligations, whether it's a spouse or children or whatever, is a fantastic way to start getting into the ride of real estate. Now, We already know that the average net worth of a homeowner is in excess of 20 to 30 times that of a tenant. This is relatively easy to study and it's relatively available on the interwebs. But the reason it's important is because you want to get on the path of owning many properties quickly. You want to do that as soon as possible. So the benefits of compound interest can actually start working for you. The beauty is when you start with a smaller property, at some point you're going to move up to a larger property and that allows you to bank hack, which means you're putting three or 5% down in your first property, you live there for a year or two, and then you move and you do it again. So you go from a one bedroom to a two bedroom and a two bedroom to a three bedroom and a three bedroom to a four bedroom. And before you know it, you got four or five properties. How many poor people do you know that own multiple properties? Well, anecdotally, the answer is probably zero. Generally, property owners who own multiple properties, not just one rental and maybe their own home, but multiple properties, are generally independently wealthy individuals. They could retire and live off their rental cash flow if they wanted to at some point. Uh, And so uh, the benefits here are pretty obvious. But by waiting for a 20% down payment, most people not only delay when they end up purchasing their first home, but I would venture to say a vast majority of people never actually make it to 20% down. See, there's something regarding the psychology of money that I talk a lot about in my courses on educating folks to build their wealth, whether it's the real estate, higher income, or stocks, whatever it may be. There's a psychology to money that the more money you have sitting in a bank account, the more you, whether you realize it or not, take your foot off the gas. The richer you feel, the more you feel like you have a lot of money sitting in your bank account, the less likely you are to actually a potentially work harder or that side hustle to make some more money and the less likely you are to actually save that money in fact in a study by harvard they found that an individual who has one dollar sitting in a savings account is nearly 100 percent likely to spend it whereas one dollar the same dollar of cash sitting in a brokerage account, like a TD Ameritrade or whatever broker you would want to use, is nearly 100% likely not to spend it. How wild is that? Think about that. If you see the money, not only are you less likely to make more money, but you are more likely to spend it, meaning you never actually get to the 20% down payment and you never get into home ownership. It's better to live beneath your means, get something small when you're younger, because again, you don't have the familial obligations, but you get in, you get started in home ownership. You also have, and and this is sort of like uh, something that I'm, I, I don't expect people to actually follow this path that I'm about to say, Uh, But this is supposed to be sort of like that worst case scenario in the back of your mind because I understand a lot of people who watch my channel, I think they're very analytical and they're very smart people and they want to get better in life. And so they think through their decisions very well. Maybe they're less impulsive. And one of the things that regularly comes up is, well, what's your worst case scenario if you can't pay for your property anymore, right? And let's say you had to Give the keys back to the bank, that'd be terrible, right? It could damage your credit for four to seven years. You don't want to be in a situation where you're in above your head, right? But let me ask you this. Would you rather go through such a terrible situation when you're 19 and you have basically nothing to lose, or when you're 32 and you have kids and a family? Huge difference, right? Not only from an energy point of view, but the distance you have to fall. So the risks are actually substantially later. The longer you wait, the more you actually increase your downside, the more intimidating you make it to buy, and the less likely you are to actually buy. Now that brings up the second big issue, and a lot of people complain about mortgage insurance. They're like, Kevin, but if I have to pay mortgage insurance for the next 30 years, that means I'm paying an additional half to 1% on the interest rate. Essentially, it's, it's mortgage insurance is calculated based on your outstanding loan balance. It's calculated the same way the interest is calculated. So usually what you do is if you have, let's say a 5% mortgage and your mortgage insurance is 1%, you could basically do the math by just saying, okay, my interest is 6% because it's calculated the same way. They're different items. And the reason they're different items is actually really important because what you can do and most people do is after a few years of owning a property, once you get your property's loan paid down to about 80%, you can actually apply to request a removal of mortgage insurance. Now that doesn't work when the market is going down, which in 2023, the market's probably trending down. It's probably not the best time to be buying until maybe later in the year, but who knows? Rates are still high. There's a lot of macroeconomic pressure, but that's really outside the purposes of, of this video. What's more important is that you can get rid of mortgage insurance at some point in the future. So usually people who think that they're stuck with mortgage insurance forever aren't thinking about the fact that the average length that somebody holds a loan is only five years. The average length of time somebody actually lives in a property is seven years. And most people sell. So most people end up getting rid of their mortgage insurance solely by refinancing by year five. But as soon as year two, worst case year three, You could potentially just apply by paying for an appraisal with your mortgage servicer to get rid of mortgage insurance. So you're generally not looking at keeping mortgage insurance very long. In fact, I bought a really good deal when I first bought my property, uh, my first home, I bought a wedge deal. And because I bought a wedge deal, I bought a property with 3.5% down, financed the fix-up through a, 30K, a 203k renovation loan. It's an FHA chapter instead of 203b, which is a non-renovation loan. And by doing so, I uh, was able to build so much equity in the property within the first year of ownership that I refinanced in the second year, qualified completely on my own. My income had gone up. Everything's great. And what happened? Boom, mortgage insurance gone. Now I'm in a conventional loan. Then, uh, now I have equity in the property and no mortgage insurance. What do I do? Get a home equity line of credit, which now I could tap 10% of the, uh, an additional 10% of the equity in my uh, property for. And what do I do with that 60 grand? Boom, buy my first rental property. (laughs) Now I could have also used that to just buy and move into my next home. It's not the path that I went down, but it's an option. The third mistake that a lot of people make and this is a simple one, is they just wait for their dream home. I think this has a lot to do with the fact that they're saving up their down payment and they're trying to avoid mortgage insurance and they're so anxious about uh, their, their, you know, getting to that 20% that by the time they actually are ready to buy their home, they have no choice but wanting their dream home and then they potentially never end up buying. So kind of crazy, but in my opinion, I would highly encourage looking into real estate sooner rather than later. And I would really encourage making sure you avoid the three mistakes we talked about in this video. So if you found that helpful, leave a comment down below, share the video, and thank you. So uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a lot of people have been asking me about those things. So hopefully that was insightful to y'all. Uh, that is uh, three big mistakes home buyers should avoid. I see it all the time. Uh, so, yeah. All right, let's see what we got here. I love the stupid comments when chat is public. (laughs) Spot on advice, thanks so much. Can I buy that vest? I don't know, maybe we'll customize these vests one day. Can you look over wire? I don't know anything about wire. Uh, I hate it when people send money for just like a random stock and they're like, i do this. <laughs> like, I'm not offended that you sent, that you sent money, but I just feel bad because sorry, we got stuff to cover, you know, I can't drop everything for that. I don't even know what it is, is the problem. And en- Encore wire stock. I mean, the thing's a $3 billion company. Uh, yeah, who knows? Um, like, I don't know. I don't even know what they do. So anyway, uh, does that work for cars? <laughs> How can you become a member from the UAE? You know, I think you're talking about uh, like a channel member on, the, on, the, um, uh, on, on YouTube here. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, if YouTube doesn't give you an option to hit the join button, I don't know if that's available then in your country. Just make sure you're not trying on an iPhone or iPad. You can't hit the join button on an iPhone or iPad. But if you go on a computer, the join button might actually show up for you haha <laughs> yeah sorry hustle smart i appreciate you asking if you could borrow the jet nobody else is allowed to use my jet is my baby my jet <laughs> nobody decides where that sucker goes but kevin nobody decides anything about that plane but kevin and only kevin goes on it i don't i i, I don't i don't do rides <laughs> i'm not an uber <laughs> uh well that'd be an interesting uber but i think that's what airlines are for and that ain't me so, uh, okay, let's go ahead and uh, let's touch on the next topic. So the next thing that we've got to talk about, uh, oh gosh, yeah, this is a good one. This is We've got to talk about what the heck is actually going on now with markets. And I find it really interesting. So let's go ahead and start. I was wrong about individuals' perception and market responses to what would happen with market data. And I'm really surprised because I think there's a shift happening. And I want you to think about the shift with me for a moment and I want you to see if you're seeing this same shift. Okay, ready for this? This is really fascinating in my opinion. All right, so first, remember when all of this crisis started in January of 2022. One of the crazy things about Jan of 2022 was that basically every bit of news in January of 2022, which is one of the reasons I sold uh, I sold out of almost all, I actually sold out of everything, went to 100% cash, and then started buying into what I thought would be more recession resilient stocks later. But anyway, the problem you had in January of 2022 was that good news Was equal to bad news so in other words strong earnings strong pp earnings uh, eps growth all of that equaled bad news uh, good economic news equaled bad and the reason for that was everybody was worried about the boogeyman of inflation how bad was inflation going to get right that's what everyone cared about inflation 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 now, something really interesting happened. By December of 2022, we got a retail sales report that came out, uh, which is funny in some regard, because today we also have a retail sales report coming out. But mostly I want to talk about this, this change here. And I want to see if you're seeing this change in the market as well. When that retail sales data came out, it came out bad. December retail sales were bad, like the actual numbers were bad. And the thesis of 2022 was, well, wait a minute. The opposite of what was going on in January should be good, right? So bad news should be good for inflation, right? It's obviously bad for for earnings or bad for certain companies, but bad news should be good for inflation. But what you had in December was we got retail sales numbers that were actually bad. And something really changed in December. In December, All of a sudden, you had people worried about a recession. The idea that inflation was the boogeyman went away. Inflation was no longer bad. What was bad was bad news. So bad news was truly bad because it meant potential recession, right? It meant that we were getting pushed into a recession. Nobody cared about the idea of a recession in January of 2022 because everybody's like, Things are so great, the Fed's going to rug pull us with with massively high rates. So, what mattered in January was rates mattered. Inflation mattered. This is what mattered in January of 2022. Big difference all of a sudden in December. In December, inflation did not matter anymore. And this is going to be interesting because obviously we just got a CPI report. Run with me on this, all right? So, inflation did not matter in January of twenty two. What mattered was a recession mattered. In fact, I would go as far as saying rates mattered less as well. And then when you get over to January of 2023 and I'll say early uh, February of 2023, you had another interesting thing that happened. You had the Fed's terminal rate move up from about 4.9% uh, market expectations to as high as 5.3%. So you had, uh, I'll write that down clearly. You had 4.9% expectations, cut 1.7% by end of 2023, turned into 5.3% expectation, no cuts in 2023. But what was crazy was the market actually did well. In fact, we got a CPI report that was bad. It showed inflation on a core level was still sticky. Core services still showing a strong element of stickiness well above 2%. Yes, if you take core services minus housing, you're at an annualized rate of about 3.48%, 3.5%, which is better than it has been But it was still a bad report in the sense that, uh uh-oh, well, what if those used car auction prices start coming through and we start seeing an increase again in used car prices? What if that goods inflation slows down relative to when housing inflation might slow down, right? And so what you ended up having was a report that missed on the headline numbers, right? We had a report that missed on two out of the four numbers and then two of the month over month numbers matched. So you actually got a report that I would say was hot. I should call it a hot report. And what ended up happening? The market rallied. And that's because, in my opinion, what did we learn in December of 2022? Inflation doesn't actually matter anymore. And rates don't actually matter anymore. What matters now is EPS fear. That's what matters right now. What matters is not a recession or inflation or rates. What matters now is the fear of EPS. Now earnings per share fear is very interesting because what you're actually seeing happen is companies are waiting, like the market, the market is waiting for the catalyst moment of earnings. And so what you end up having is you have stocks that are trading like this. You get this sort of sideways trading and then all of a sudden here you get earnings. And what's been happening as of late for many companies is as soon as earnings happen, you get a massive move, either up like Airbnb, uh, you get a uh, trade desk, Tesla, right? Or you get a massive move down, think Lyft. So in other words, Look at how, how markets have evolved here, how things have changed. And it's really important to think about this because if you're making bets on the market actually giving a crap anymore about inflation, even though that's what everyone's talking about, it doesn't seem like what that's what the market cares about. The market used to care about inflation. January 2022, all you had to do was go short the market, Because everybody cared about inflation, which was getting worse, 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 worse. Now that inflation is getting slowly better, even if it takes more time, the markets are not reacting to inflation as much anymore. So the the economic sensitivity of inflation has fallen. And what mattered more was this idea of a recession. But the reason a recession mattered is because of what it would do to company earnings. And that's why, in my opinion, when we got our CPI report, markets are kind of like, whatever, man. Like, even though it's hot, we don't care. We got that catalyst out of the way. Even though it's hot, we don't care so much about inflation anymore. we got cash to deploy. Let's deploy that cash. So while it was still a catalyst moment, even though the news came in hot, it ended up being a good thing for markets, which kind of feels a little clownish, right? It's like, how can inflation come in hot and the market rally? It's because people don't care About inflation anymore market-wise. And when I say market, I'm talking about stocks, right? Stocks don't care about that. Stocks care about earnings per share right now. Look at all of the companies that have reported over the last uh, two months and see what happened after earnings. Usually, you had pretty violent moves, well above the expected moves for those companies and whether even if, even consider Enphase, uh, you know, whatever. There are plenty of companies that we could look at. But the point being here is, for some reason, EPS has become this substantially greater catalyst. And when we look at uh, uh, our expectations, we have to adjust them. Because when I say, uh, you know, in, in this topic, I was wrong, what I'm saying is, I thought Inflation, disinflating and proving the disinflation mattered the most right now. I thought the Federal Reserve's terminal rate mattered the most. Now, I'm realizing this, I think, relatively quickly because this is something that has just transitioned within the last month. Uh, And yesterday really reiterated that to me where I'm looking going, why? This doesn't make sense. What has changed? The market is not behaving the way it used to behave in 2022. It has changed. And the reality is, when the facts change, you should change your mind and you should change your strategy. And so I think, especially if you're trading in this market or you're looking at catalysts, something to know is it doesn't seem like inflation is the big one right now. Obviously, if inflation doubles up, it's going to be a big issue, right? But if you look at EPS, that seems to be the big deal. And that seems to be where uh, whatever ends up happening, you get the massive moves in stocks after earnings per share, especially once those catalysts are over, because people are looking, going, hey, what's the forecast? What's the outlook for the companies that I'm most interested in? And companies that are saying, hey, look, we're getting through this, like Trade Desk or Airbnb, despite potential red flags that have been seen and feared in the fourth quarter, what you end up having is big old moves, big old moves. So, uh, that's my take on, uh, on, on this massive shift that's happening. I think it's important to pay attention to and, uh, we'll see what you think. Let me know in the comments down below. All right. So let's take a quick look at, uh, pre-market here. Let's see here. And I guess I forgot to change this. Change this. There we go. Let's look at the pre-market here and do maybe a little bit of Q&A here. Mm. Let's see. We live in a fantasy world and society is brainwashed. Okay. <laughs> How about the debt ceiling? I think the debt ceiling is. will we'll, we'll end up getting raised. I'm highly confident of that. Uh, you know, a lot of companies are beating on EPS, right? It's important to consider that you have like 69% of companies beating on earnings per share and, uh, and <laughs> uh, revenue projections are coming in higher as well. Yeah, there are obvious obviously some companies that are missing. That's just the nature of not everything goes in one direction, right? Important to know. Inflation doesn't matter because people don't believe it will come, because people believe it will come down. Yeah, that's potentially, you said it nine months ago, eight to 6% is easy. Six to 2% is really hard. We'll see ebbs and flows in probably a second run in 12 months or so. That says Troy. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. I'm not the biggest believer in this sort of second run of inflation, but uh, who knows? You know, a lot of companies have gotten primed to think that the way to get through this economy is by uh, uh, jumping uh, uh, prices, basically, popping prices. So uh, it's absolutely possible. (laughs) 69. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So pre-market right now, looks like uh, we've got bonds. Honestly, this 10-year treasury yield sitting at 3.75%, pretty hot. It's not going to be good for real estate. Now, I, I think it's worth n- noting how housing is going to affect inflation and sort of what's to become in the housing market. But uh, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of a look into housing here. Let's see here. Okay, so we'll touch on housing a little bit. we got some time to do that. Okay, stand by. Now we've got to talk about the housing market and the latest drama that's going on in the housing market. First, we already know that we've got a lot of anecdotal evidence, especially from what we covered just the other day, of new construction home builders alleging that home builders are potentially rigging their current contracts to make it seem like they still have good contract flow to manipulate appraisals to make sure their existing deals that are already in escrow actually close. This is scary, but one of the big things that makes me want to really pay attention to what's going on in housing always starts with mortgage rates. Mortgage rates and housing are very correlated. This should be obvious, but a lot of people don't realize the connection. For every 1% that mortgage rates go up, buyer purchasing power falls by 10%. That's because your payment for your PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance, plus potentially HOA dues if you have those, actually end up going up by roughly that amount. Now, that's because property taxes are usually based on what you're paying for the property, right? And uh, and then, of course, mortgage rates are based on uh, what's happening in the 10-year treasury market and what is the risk-free rate of return. And so that pushes up or down mortgage rates. And so mortgage rates have obviously moved up from somewhere around 2.75% for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, all the way now for somebody with a 740 credit score. Let's take a look at the latest data. Latest data shows us, survey says 6.442%. Now that has moved up recently as the 10-year treasury yield has moved up. And this is a lot of reduced buyer purchasing power. Now, one of the things that the real estate market really has going for it is that there's very, very little inventory available in markets right now. For example, if I look at uh, the market in my neck of the woods, which is, uh, we'll look at uh, the city of Ventura, for example, what I like to do is I like to regularly see, okay, how many houses and how many condos are for sale? And I remember when I got in the industry at the bottom of the last housing market, actually, the market still had a little bit to go down. It still had another year of pain uh, when I got in. So I was still on sort of that downslope when I got started in 2010 uh, and 2011. What you found was a lot of agents were panicking because there weren't enough homes to sell. And there were about 80 homes on the market at any given time. That was really deemed lack of supply. And what I found... Throughout my career, was that anytime that number ran up to somewhere around 400 homes, uh, which I, let me let me clarify that when we were at 80 homes, I was actually already that was closer to the bottom of the market. 80 homes on the market was 2012. When I got into the market, there were about 400 homes on the market. So let me make that very clear: bad market, 400 homes on the market; good market, low supply, easy to sell properties, right? Prices going up. 80 homes on the market. That was like the end of 2012. And that's when we really started seeing a pop-up. And so what I like to do, and you could do this very simply in your neck of the woods, is just simply go to like Redfin, for example, type in your city and look at how many homes are for sale in your area. Right now we've got 98 homes for sale. Uh, that's pretty low. That's pretty dang low. So inventory is still low. This is something that really has uh, the real estate market propped up. Now, what's remarkable about that is we are seeing months supply increase because fewer people are buying because that buyer purchasing power is going down. And the big fear moment that we've been talking about, and we can get the latest update here from the Redfin Data Center, which just updated, I think actually this morning, the latest update from the Redfin Data Center is that nationally, median home prices are stable at about 347 right now in the last week of January going into the first week of February. A stable 347 hopefully moves up for people who own homes, but if it stays stable, is very soon going to start showing year over year declines. In fact, in about two weeks, we might see this blue 2023 line cross over the black line. And then anytime that blue line is under the black, you're going to have negative year over year numbers. And I think in a few months time, that's really going to start a media circus around, oh my gosh, Home prices are officially negative year over year. And that's going to make people pretty nervous. Now, if you go to month's supply of homes over here, if you are a bull on the housing market, you want month supply to come down. If you're a bear on housing and you want to see housing prices come down, you want month supply to stay elevated. We ended last year at about 12.9 weeks of supply for the nation. The year before that, we ended 2021 with about seven weeks of supply. So already housing supply skyrocketed. But right now, weeks of supply for homes is sitting at 16.4, more than double the level of housing supply based on how many people are actually buying than we had previously. So even though there are very few homes on the market, roughly you could factor in. If housing supply stays stable, you could roughly say, Half as many people are actually buying right now than would ordinarily buy in sort of an average market. And so that creates some red flags for the housing market and potentially creates some opportunities to buy homes soon. Now, there are some markets... Uh, that's because we would think that maybe once we hit sort of peak fear while mortgage rates are still high, there'll be some really good opportunities to buy real estate. So for example, if you look at Boise, you could see, okay, we have home prices. Let's go back to home prices over here. It's just the Redfin Data Center. You could do this as well. You go to home prices over here, go to median sales price, and we could see, look at Boise dropping off a cliff. The more this blue line gets bad, And it's already under last year's line. We're already down 11%. But imagine it stabilizes at 434, and then you compare up to this peak over here. 434 divided by, what is this number over here? 547. 547 shows you declines of over 20%. That's scary. Now, if that continues to go down, that could be even larger. So where are areas that are potentially leveling out? Well, let's look at Tampa, Florida, for example. Look at this, Tampa, Florida actually is starting to see home prices take up a little bit, which is great because if this blue line could trend above this black line, you might not ever have a negative month over month read for homes in areas like Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida, Miami are getting insane amounts of inflows and you might actually not have a housing correction in Florida. Whereas in an area like Boise, you're absolutely likely to have one and prices are still falling. Go to, for example, Austin, Texas, opposite of Florida. What do you have in Austin, Texas? Negative prices year over year already. And so I think this becomes very important for if you're looking to buy real estate, as you want to know in what markets are you, going, are you already negative or are you likely to be negative soon? San Diego seems to be starting to try to uh, form some form of recovery here, though even just looking at at, at the end of November and December over here, the numbers are are not great, right? We're still at lows. Uh, And so we'll see if that can actually recover. If you go to, let's say, Salt Lake City, let's take a look at Salt Lake. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, How about Utah? Okay, fine. Then we won't look at Utah for the Redfin data. There's got to be Utah in here. Uh, What if I just do SLC? No? Salt Lake? No? Okay, fine then how about we go to Phoenix? So if we jump on over to Phoenix, negative year over year, right? You're already negative 5% year over year, and that gets worse when you're over here. So you've got a lot of markets that have really corrected, but then there are markets that are still booming. And Florida seems to be one of those markets that's still booming quite substantially. Seattle, you had this major, massive hump over here. It'll be quite fascinating to see if this hump Uh, ends uh, ends up negative if you get any kind of stability over here. So we'll see. Personally, I think a lot of it is going to be driven by those mortgage rates. And again, one of the things that could be manipulating some of the data that we're looking at right now is we did have a lull in mortgage rates, right? Look at this lull in mortgage rates. We had a low in mortgage rates right around February 1st, maybe around, yeah, probably, I mean, here, the way we could probably look at this a little bit more clearly, just go to CNBC, look at bonds, Look at the 10-year. And what do you do when you look at the 10-year? Just go back, say, about three months. And look at this. Yeah, you had a lull in mortgage rates around February 1st, which that aligns with what we're seeing here. Now, mortgage rates today are higher than where they have been almost all of January and the beginning of February. So it's possible you could actually see sort of a micro double dip, dare I say those words. Uh, If you go to the Redfin Data Center over here, what do you have? You could potentially see, going to median sales prices, you could potentially see a little bit of a flattening and recovery thanks to mortgage rates being stable, But potential and, and even in Florida where you're seeing that increase, and then potentially a double dip again should mortgage rates stay stable high. So the longer those 10-year treasury yields stay high, the more pain you would expect for real estate. And if you combine high 10-year treasury yields with Those year-over-year comps, probably going to have a little bit of a rough spring. But if we can get through spring and we start seeing real housing disinflation in owner's equivalent rents and we start seeing inflation decline dramatically, I wouldn't be surprised, and this is sort of my forecast of, of what I see for the housing market, the following happens. So I think you potentially go through this, you have this down sort of correction of 2022 where home prices are falling, and they're falling as mortgage rates are going up. Then you have mortgage rates temporarily fall, which leads to a slight bump in home prices because mortgage real estate is very sensitive to rates, right? This is potentially your Jan-Feb bump. But if rates stay high for longer like they are now, you're probably likely to see this sort of continuation where we go back to at least the lows of where we were here potentially even a little lower as what happens is you start lapping that year-over-year fear. This is where you get that March to May year-over-year fear. But come June, July, maybe even sooner, come June or July, you're probably going to see a substantial set of housing disinflation drag CPI down. When CPI inflation starts plummeting, I would expect the 10-year treasury is going to plummet very quickly. So, I would expect over here, the 10 year will probably break 3%. So, that break on the 10 years is likely to happen. That's my opinion, right? So, I think the 10 year breaks 3%, and that actually leads to a support being placed under the housing market. And you actually see uh, your, your slow and sustained rebound back to home prices doing sort of their usual 3%, 4%, perhaps. I think a lot of that is going to be dependent on mortgage rates actually coming down again. By breaking 3% on the 10-year, I think you're likely to see that. So the summer and spring might be difficult because you've got to get through fear and higher yields, which we're about to hit fear, and you're in higher yields uh, in terms of the market now, uh, and they seem to be pretty sticky around this level. They might be pretty sticky at this level until the next Fed meeting, which would be about uh, March 22nd. Uh, but who knows, they could also be sticky through about May until we really get that summer disinflation from from lapping some of the owner's equivalent rents. So that's my thesis and timing. If I had to choose when to buy, personally, I'd probably want to be looking at uh, July through December as my buy time. I think July might be when you have a lot most of the fear in, in markets, but December is just generally usually a good time to buy. Uh, because the people who are selling usually have to sell. right? So that really puts you somewhere between Q3 and Q4. You know, is it possible that that's, you know, that Florida is already beyond that bottom, that maybe Florida bottoms right here, which ends up being something like a December and it recovers from there? Absolutely. Personally, Florida is probably uh, not in in, in my uh, radar for buying anyway. So uh, that, that, you know, could work out for your personal situation, right? You might be more motivated now in Florida. And later, if you're more West Coast, you might be more motivated in the second half of the year. There's just some theses about where the housing market would go. And I really encourage everybody to get started in in, uh, real estate. I think the easiest way to become a millionaire, it's the reason I called my course Zero to Millionaire, Real Estate Investor, is I actually think everybody can do it. And people hear that and they're like, you're crazy, man. Not everybody can be a millionaire. I'm like, ah, wrong. <laughs> like we can because bread will cost $50 a loaf. I'm just kidding. <laughs> As if everything just inflates that much. Uh, but anyway, no, I'm I'm very, very optimistic that uh, anybody who wants to become successful in real estate can do it. So uh, that's my take on some of the latest regarding the housing market. All right, let's go back. Let's see what we hear. Uh, 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 uh. I'm surprised Roblox is up. Their financials suck. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's pretty incredible. It's uh, they, they move a lot on uh, what's happening with their user base, whether they're getting more users or fewer users. It's it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, Paula Patel, you're new to the channel. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Roblox up 15%. Did they just report? Let me take a look at what's going on here. Let's see what we got. Roblox. That might be why you're talking about Roblox. Let's see. Oh, we have uh, retail sales coming out in three minutes. Oh, yeah. I think they did report. Yep. They got a beat. Yeah, They're going to stop posting monthly metrics after March. Interesting. Daily active users, 58.8. You know, when World of Warcraft did that, things started plummeting. (laughs) Uh, That's odd. EPS beats by six cents. Bookings beat by 14 mil. I'm telling you, man, that earnings catalyst stuff we talked about, it's a big deal. Big old deal. Uh, All right, so we're gonna get retail sales here in a moment. We'll talk about that. Uh, But let's do a quick look at the sticks here. I enjoy looking at the sticks with y'all. So, briefly... Options, options, options. My lordy, Tesla's up 2% again. Uh, Airbnb up 8%. They smashed earnings. We watched earnings together in the office yesterday. Uh, Wow, Trade Desk, 14%. Roblox, 15%. You've got uh, MP materials down 3% over here. Uh, keep in mind, I'll be doing an interview, uh, well, I guess you won't, You probably won't see it today, but uh, I'll be doing an interview today with uh, the folks over at Boxable, so stay tuned for that. Uh, is anyone here, uh, I'll, I wanna well, I'll ask that question later, or maybe I can run the survey here. Uh, have you invested in Boxable? Uh, I'm gonna run that as a poll, and I'm very curious to see what you all say. So yes, no, uh, and and if you don't know what that is, it, it, you know you could wait for my uh, video on that uh, when when I actually do it. But anyway, so we've got to prepare for retail sales while we wait for that. Retail sales data. Uh, this is this could be a market mover. So retail sales data could be a market mover. So so prepare prepare yourself for that. Uh, here I'll give you the uh, latest numbers too. all right okay retail sales numbers coming out in 30 seconds here's the expectation the expectation for retail sales month over month is a two percent increase up from the negative 1.1 percent previously x autos looking for a point nine percent increase x autos and gas looking for a point nine percent increase all of the numbers in the last report were negative all december numbers were negative january uh, we're expecting positive numbers. Retail sales control group, 1%. The numbers come out within about the next 10 seconds. So buckle up, folks. This could be a market mover. What do we got with retail sales? Are people spending money or not? Empire Manuf. Okay, holy crap. Retail sales come in hot, 3%. The expectation month over month was 2%. Oh my God, everything's hot. Hot, hot, hot. Woo! Retail sales, X autos, month over month, expected 0. 0.9. We got 2.3. We got 2.6 on X autos and gas. Retail sales control group comes in hot as well, 1.7%. Holy schnices. What recession, folks? Holy crap. People are right back to spending. What recession? You've got the NASDAQ trying to tick down a little bit on this. you got a red candlestick on the result of this news. The NASDAQ dropping about 20 basis points initially on this. But what recession, folks? Holy smokes. These are incredible numbers on retail sales. Again, retail sales advance, beating by a full 1%. Not only are retail sales beating by 1%, on the month over month. But again, X autos, X gas, massive beats. Uh, beats by by, by 1.4 uh, to as much as, oh, t- uh, oh my Lord. Uh, that's uh, that's actually, uh, that's a 1.4% beat and that's a 1.7% beat. Holy moly. These are crazy numbers. Let's go ahead and actually look at the, the charts to see what's going on with retail sales. The people apparently spending money like crazy. Uh, this is actually something that American Express warned about, right? Remember, Amer- what did American Express say? American Express said people are spending through the recession. That's what American Express told us. And so, what do we actually have here on the retail sales report? Monthly retail sales estimates have been revised. Uh, yep, they okay. The fall of last month, they actually revised X autos month over month from negative 1.1 to negative 0.9, from negative 0.7 for X autos and gas to negative 0.4. So, the last numbers were revised better as well. Holy smokes. Look at that. January, 2023, 3% advanced monthly sales. This is a big old boom right over here. Uh, let's see what we got. Advanced estimates of retail food and service sales for January, 2023 adjusted for seasonal va- variations, holiday and trading day differences, but not for price changes. We're up 3%. Total sales were up 6.1% from the same period a year ago. What recession? Retail trades were up 2.3% from December of 2022. Food and service, holy crap. Food and service and drinking place, food services and drinking places were up 25.2% from January of 2022. Sorry, guys. I spent a lot of time at restaurants in 2022. Uh, Mostly food, some drinking. While general merchandise stores were up 4.5%. Ah, it's people aren't buying stuff, man. People are going out getting drinks and food. This is nuts. Wow. Okay. Uh, So I want to see some more of the charts here. Uh, Let's see if we can get a little bit more. This is just some more info. Oh, here we go. Here are the charts. Let's also see what the suits are saying about this. Because this is remarkable. I mean, this is a crazy beat here on a retail sales. Really, really incredible. Let's see what where this is. So first, we're gonna look at the, uh, the let's look at the adjusted for a moment here. We're gonna look at the second column on the right, and uh, potentially, you know, the easiest way to do this is let's look at the we'll look at the non-adjusted number here, and then we'll also look at the adjusted number here. I'm circling it just so when we zoom in, it's a little easier to look at. So what do we have here? General merchandise stores. Okay, what's the change here? Oh, these are just nominal numbers. That does me a little good. I want the percent change. Okay, well that's over here. That's a uh, second column in. So let's look at the second column in for the one month change. What do we have? Uh, that's 3.4% in general in merchandise, department stores, 3.1%. So if you're into like Macy's and stuff like that, 3.1%, it's so not actually that high. You've got uh, electronics. This is non-store retailers. This is like your Etsy right here, 5.7%, much higher than what you actually have for your uh, merchandising stores. So that's pretty substantial. Food and drinking places. Thank you very much. Uh, 24%. That's insane. Holy smokes. Clothing. We saw this in the CPI numbers. People spending a ton of money again on clothing. What the hell? 6.6%. Who's buying new clothes right now? I thought that was like after the, the, the pandemic, everybody went out to go buy clothes. This is crazy. Market's actually stable. Market barely cares. The market barely cares. Look at this for one. I mean, this could change during the day. But what did I tell you earlier in this live? I told you earlier I go, look, <laughs> the market cares about a recession right now. Uh, and, and, and what and, and earnings per share. And what are these numbers telling us? EPS go moon, baby. Moon. Two-week call options? Yes. <laughs> no, don't do that. It's <laughs> not advice. Gasoline stations up 5.1. Health and personal care stores. 4.9%. There's beauty for you. Food and beverage stores. Look, people don't care about grocery stores right now, uh, even though that's up 5.8%. The big number is food and drinking. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like people are like buying private jets and, and flying around to different restaurants and different places going to have drinks with people who are hanging out with them and shadowing them. This is crazy. Look at this. Electronics and appliance stores, minus 6.5%. Getting smashed over here, the electronics. People are just... People just want entertainment. Who's more entertaining? I oh, never mind. Uh, furniture, home furnishings, 4.5%. That's pretty nominal. It's probably one of the weaker categories. Motor vehicle and parts, that's actually surprisingly low for motor vehicle and parts. So people spending less money on their cars, more money just drinking, uh, and, and of course eating. Uh, it's not the only thing you can go out for is drinks. You can go out to like escape rooms drunk or you could go to axe throwing drunk or you could go, you know, to a movie theater drunk. I'm sorry. Uh, Anyway, so retail, uh, total retail 6.7% increase. This is, these are the, I mean, this is just, these are insane numbers. Uh, Absolutely insane numbers. So this is a crazy retail sales report. Shows us where people are going. Okay, this is the, uh, so those were, what do we have here? this is retail total motor vehicle parts. Okay. Okay. We, these are pretty darn similar. We already talked about those preliminaries. We talked about these. Okay. Just trying to get a little bit more color here. I mean, this, this is a phenomenal, phenomenal report for retail sales. And you won't believe this. Okay. You won't believe this. Remember how I said earlier that what everyone cares about right now is EPS, right? There we're over inflation, the inflation story is over. And how is the market reacting right now to a crazy retail sales report, which should make us nervous about pricing power and inflation and companies raising prices like crazy again, right? Should make us nervous in that. What is, how is the market reacting? Stepbro not stuck. Stepbro not stuck. Stepbro out having a good time. That's what Stepbro's doing. Stepbro first is like, oh no, is he stuck? No, he ain't stuck. He's partying. <laughs> this is insane. Uh, that's actually really, really good. They the, the Fed might actually stick a soft landing. Could you imagine that? No recession, soft landing, Jerome Powell's right. You know, somebody asked me the other day, they're like, well, maybe Jerome Powell just wants to rig everything. You know, why, why would he want it to be good? Because think about it. If you're Jerome Powell, do you want to be wrong or do you want to be right? Well, obviously you want to be right. What if you're correct about the soft landing? What if Jerome Powell is right? That inflation ends up being transitory, sticks a soft landing, and actually navigates us into a boom decade of the 2020s. You know what's going to happen to Jerome Powell? They will make statues of that son of a gun. People will start worshipping Jerome Powell if he could actually stick this. So if you're Jerome Powell, you want to be right. And if you could be right about those two things, you will go down as probably... You know, until next time, one of the greatest Fed chairs ever, and the guy with the money printer. (laughs) That's crazy. What's CNBC saying about this? I digress. I've always
1: liked Steve. Joining us right now to dig into the new retail sales numbers and the state of the consumer is Terry Lundgren. He's former Macy's president, CEO, and chairman. Of course, he's now the CEO of TJL Advisors. And Terry, what do you think of these numbers? Of course, he's a consultant now. As Rick was pointing out, the first time since October that we've seen a plus sign in front of the retail sales.
2: It's definitely stronger uh, than we expected, Becky. Um, it demonstrates that the consumer uh, does have, uh, have, still have firepower uh, and is willing to, to spend. Uh, and this definitely surpassed um, our expectations. And I have to, to say, when you think about, one of the biggest reasons why I'm surprised because we're going against such strong numbers, and retailers are always looking to beat last year and the year before that. And this yep. compounded gain is quite extraordinary. We've had 22 points of gain over the last three years in retail sales. So we're we're adding on top of that. I think it's... Uh, He's
0: right. I mean, think about all the COVID sales, right? You're adding on top of those it's nuts.
1: Earlier with Jan Niffin, and he was just pointing out that what you've seen for a while now has been that the luxury uh, brands have done much better than some of the lower-end brands. And that makes a lot of sense when you consider inflation really cuts in higher food inflation, higher prices at the pump. That cuts in... Uh, to lower income consumers' ability to pay for things.
2: No question. Uh, we've talked about that in the past that a larger and larger percent of net income for the lower and middle household uh, income consumer is going toward shelter, food and energy. Yep. Uh, and when that happens, it obviously just reduces their ability to spend uh, on discretionary items. So uh, that doesn't affect that that high-end consumer. You've got LVmH, one of my my favorite companies on the screen uh, and, and and that consumer is going to continue uh, continue to spend. And I think when there's more international travel, uh, that business will go up even further because many people like to shop when they're on their vacation or when they're traveling
1: so for a long time the markets people in general have been worried about what's happening to the economy that's a good point by the way when you when you travel you
0: just buy stuff because there's nothing else to do other than drink buy stuff and party
1: fall by the wayside when you're going to see the jobs market get 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 tougher um none of that has happened yet is this waiting for godot you think this really is going to happen later this year
2: i I do think it's going to eventually happen. you know one of the key numbers here uh, is the savings that consumers have uh, and and historically, we Americans spend our savings you know in, in the middle and <laughs> middle and lower household in, incomes we spend our savings, get it all the way down to zero that hasn 't been the case yep. since the stimulus uh, packages helped support those savings uh, yep. accounts and it's it's maintained so so while that number has come down dramatically over the last two and a half years, uh, consumers still have more than a trillion dollars in excess savings versus two thousand and nineteen. That combined with higher wage growth uh, and, as you mentioned, this very low unemployment number is giving that consumer still the confidence to continue to spend. I do think, however, uh, that as these inflationary bites uh, keep challenging this consumer in terms of uh, taking pieces of their their overall uh, net income, uh, that, that, will, that consumption will slow down over time. And again, I have to, to remind us, we're just going against very, very strong retail sales numbers. All
0: right, we're going to pull off this guy. Uh, listen, he is absolutely 100% right. Remember the study I've talked about many times on this channel. Harvard economists tell us that if you have a dollar of money sitting in your bank account, you are nearly 100% likely to spend it. If you have that money in real estate or stocks or brokerage accounts, you are nearly 100% likely not to spend it. Therefore, in order to prop up the consumer, the consumer should not invest, right? Consumers should keep their money in savings accounts. That's how consumers get robbed and they never end up building wealth. Now, I want to end this segment here on something that drives me nuts. And it is acorns. I hate to say it, they have a very great rating online. People love them, okay? It is the stupidest thing you could use. If you use Acorns, and I've said this before, this is my opinion, I'm not trying to bash them, but I think they are scamming people. Now, again, I don't think they actually, or like financially, you're scamming people. I just think psychologically, they are ruining you. Because think about this. Acorns is a company that basically says, hey, well, when you swipe your credit card, will round up to whatever increment you want and will invest that automatically for you. Fine, sounds great, right? But that means every time you go buy something, rather than feeling the pain of paying, like if you want the ultimate pain of paying, this is pain of paying. When you take out cash, like this stack of, I don't know, $1, oh, there's some 20s in here. Oh, there's some hundreds in here too. Anyway, when you take a stack of cash and you go out and you say, all right, I'm gonna go buy something, and you take that shiny crisp two dollar bill and you're like, here you go. This is the most painful way to pay for something, is you hand cold hard cash to someone. It's like, damn, I gotta get a hundred bucks out of here. Man, I really wanna keep the hundred, right? That is painful. It is a very painful way to pay. So, then we invented credit cards, which disconnected you from money, right? And it made it less painful. Now, you still have to pay off your credit card. But there's a reason Starbucks likes the Starbucks card. Because you have the pain of paying once, you put 50 bucks on your card. And then every time you go, there's no pain of paying anymore. Because you're just working off what you already have on your Starbucks gift card or whatever, right? It's kind of like when you uh, prepay for Dave & Buster's points or you get uh, chips at a casino. You've already detached yourself from your money. So you have like three levels of pain of paying, in my opinion. You have the cash pain of paying, which is very painful. Then you have... The credit card level of pain of paying, which is less painful. Then you have the gift card level of pain of paying or the casino chips or the Dave & Buster's tickets. Very, very low pain of paying. Now you want to get even more ridiculous. You put your Dave & Buster's card on your Apple Pay on your phone or your watch. Now you're Apple paying away a very low level of pain of paying, right? You want to know the ultimate most ridiculous, psychological way to ruin yourself and your spending, it's to psychologically tell yourself that every time you spend money through like Apple Pay with a low pain of paying method, which by the way, cash back rewards cards, those enhance your pay, like those enhance what I'm talking about. They make pain of paying less. Ooh, I just spent $1,000 on an airplane ticket. Good thing I get three and a half percent cash back. Like that's idiotic, right? but it reduces the pain of paying and makes you happy to spend money because you feel like you're getting more. It's a ridiculous, total ripoff, right? But this is where Acorns comes in as the stupidest and dumbest thing that you could do if you're trying to moderate your spending. You actually associate spending money via a low pain of paying method, credit card, Apple Pay, whatever. And you associate spending with investing. That, I guarantee you, is going to be the downfall of most millennials and Gen Zs who are falling victim to the bullcrap of acorns. Now, that's not going to be very popular because people are like, man, they're doing a good thing. They're getting people who don't invest into investing. No, you're psychologically robbing people, making them associate investing and the joy of investing with spending. Oh, want to invest more? go spend more. It is stupid. And if you have acorns or an acorns card, I highly recommend you cancel it, get rid of it. In fact, if you, if you want to have the, like, if you, if you have trouble sticking to a budget, go to cash. Serious. You go to cash, you will spend probably 20 to, th- I'm pulling this number out of thin air. Okay. You will probably spend 20 to 30% less money. If you spend cash on everything, cause it's lot harder. You have to go to the bank and refill it, you know, you gotta account it, you gotta make change, you gotta hold it, and it's painful! You don't wanna give up the cold, hard, green cash. But hey, you really wanna buy stuff if you get investment stocks with it. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. It is the dumbest thing you could psychologically do, and sorry I have to rant about it, I just feel so terrible for people who associate spending money on crap with investing. It's totally idiotic. That's my take. That's my take. I'm sorry. I I, 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 I know. I, I know it's a lot. But uh, yeah, Crispy Pyro or whatever over here says, that's my cocaine money. That's not my cocaine money. I don't, I don't know anything about cocaine. Uh, I love me some air miles. I always use my card. Haven't paid for a flight in so many years. I can't remember. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are going to buy stuff anyway, obviously you should get cashback rewards or air miles or stuff like that right obviously and then it is prudent for you to evaluate how do you get the best rewards for example your daily cashback card might be a 2% city double cash card might be a 2% apple cashback card maybe even 3% if you go buy at apple just as long as it's not inducing you to buy more stuff at apple right like if you're going to buy the new cable from for your iphone for 15 bucks on amazon but then you're like but i could get 3% off at apple With the Apple card, and then you pay four times as much money for the stupid cable, well, you know, that that, that you're net-net losing, right? But if you're going to be buying the flight anyway, of course, uh, air miles make a lot of sense. You know, I I mean, I I consider myself pretty well-versed in doing that as well. Uh, In fact, I have. A Bonvi card, although that one I don't like as much. You have to make sure you use that at a restaurant every single month or else it's not worth it. Uh, That almost pays for itself. I've got the Platinum, JP Morgan Reserve. i have got the Palladium card from JP Morgan, uh, which is now the JP Morgan card, the uh, nicknamed the $10 million credit card. We've got the uh, uh, United, Delta, American Airlines, all of them. One of them, by the way, I don't know where it is, but one of the airlines lets you have credit cards, authorized user credit cards for your children. So I got one for Jack, who's seven years old. And I don't actually give it to him, but I use it because anyone who holds a free authorized user card can actually bring people into the lounge for free. And their credit card, I think it's American. Pretty sure it's American but it might be Delta. Anyway, one of those. Uh, one of them gives you the free card. And uh, the crazy thing about it is they usually charge you for people above two that you, uh, like more than two people that come in. So in other words, you go into a lounge, two people can come in for free. After that, it's $30 per person, even if they're family, unless someone else with an authori- a card, like an authorized user, uh, also can bring in two people. So now I have one for Lauren, myself, and Jack, so we could bring in ourselves plus six people. <laughs> so that's like nine people. It's like, I, I'm a big fan of little hacks like that, but you actually have to use it and make sure the annual fees are worth it, right? Uh, so that's, that is different. And I, I don't wanna associate credit card rewards with bagging on acorns. Uh, credit cards do, inc- or they, they lower the pain of paying, right? They increase the psychological desire and propensity to spend, which is bad. That's why if you have a spending problem, you go to cash. Acorns is just the biggest mind F ever I mean it is the psychologically worst thing that you could do in my opinion my take that's my take <laughs> okay now here's here's somebody says okay so I'm spending five dollars why not save a dollar at the same time so this is a it's a fair counter argument like Kevin if I'm going to spend the five dollars then anyway why not save a dollar at the same time? fair, fair question, right? And it's totally reasonable because if you're going to spend the money anyway, sure. But the danger is, and you won't see it, you just won't know it because it's a psychological phenomenon that happens deep in your mindset. You'll be thinking, oh, like what you just wrote literally reiterates that. Keep this in mind, okay? This is how psychologically deep it is. You go to the store and you're like, Well, i'm gonna buy this five dollar latte anyway i may as well save a dollar you get your latte you're standing there drinking your latte i'm so good with money i'm investing a dollar into starbucks because i bought this latte even if that just makes you go to starbucks one extra time which it will you won't realize it but it will you'll go one extra time you burn five trips of savings so Psychologically, the argument I'm making is, is it's not apparent initially because you might be thinking to yourself, oh, what happened? I'm very small safe anyway. I got to get that latte anyway. You're kidding yourself. You will spend more money with acorns. It's brilliant for the consumer businesses though. Like if I was a business, I would sell gift cards all day long. I would have my own branded credit card if I was a store, uh, because I'm going to make lots of money doing that and give people 5% off like Target does. I would do whatever I could to partner with companies like Acorns. I would even go as far as saying like, I'll if 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 you invest the dollar in my stock by by buying, uh, you know, at my company through Acorns or whatever, every time you swipe the card, we'll add another 50 cents on top. Like we'll we'll give you extra rewards if you use it." I would absolutely do that because I am 100% convinced that as a seller, I would make more sales because people are stupidly being tricked into saving and investing by spending. That's dumb. It's really, really dumb. That's up. That's it. That's it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had to rant about it. I had to do it. I had to do it. I thought it was very important because it's a warning to the world. Acorns sucks. Not financial advice. <laughs> um, anyway. All right. <sighs> Sorry, I get so like worked up over these things. Could you actually, I mean, I I almost think you could call that financial advice. The problem is, so the issue, so I'm a licensed financial advisor, right? The problem is with, um, you can't, you can't have your message ever suggest that you're giving personalized financial advice, right? So if I tell you you're an idiot for getting mortgage or, or for being worried about mortgage insurance or using acorns, that might sound like personal financial advice. I think that is good financial advice. So I have to make sure I'm clear and saying that anything that I'm giving is just sort of broad, a broad suggestion, not personalized financial advice. Otherwise the SEC is gonna come from my butt. And I respect the SEC. I respect the three letter organizations and agencies. You have to follow the rules. So I just wanna be very clear. Um, yeah, anyway. So some people think that when you say, oh, this is a personalized financial advice, that somehow that like lowers the standard of your message but they also don't realize what personalized financial advice is, right? Like personal financial advice would be you coming to me, let's say, And and then to me as a licensed financial advisor, me looking at, okay, how much money do you have in bonds? What do you have in savings? What do you have in real estate? What are your goals? When do you want to retire? And actually like really coming up with a real plan for you. That's very different than just, you know, talking to 7,000 people on YouTube, right? (laughs) That's very, very different. So that's important, Uh, important to realize. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, necessary rant. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Made me feel a little better because I I was worried that I was, I was getting a little too, uh, too wild there for a moment. I like getting wired. <laughs> all right, we gotta talk about the Fed. Oh, Lordy. All right. The Federal Reserve has responded to the latest CPI report and we've gotta talk about it because the Federal Reserve's response was honestly shocking. More shocking than getting 69% off on a flash of sale uh, for the Valentine's Day coupon code. Yeah, that's shocking. Anyway, so <laughs> these responses were great. First of all, we know that inflation came in hotter than expected. We matched the month-over-month numbers, we beat on some of the headline numbers, and really, we showed that some parts of inflation were stickier than expected. And generally, you know, sticky things, you want to kind of clean that up, okay? So how the Federal Reserve responded to me was, in my opinion, surprising. Because markets would have assumed that on a hot CPI report, the Federal Reserve would have responded with, well, I guess this begets more hiking. We're just going to have to keep raising rates and we'll have to stay higher for longer, which that's probably what the markets are already pricing in anyway, given that about a month ago, we were pricing at 1.7% in rate cuts and a terminal rate of 4.9%. That has now changed to a terminal rate of about 5.26% as of right now, based on what the charts are telling me in front of me, and no rate cuts for the year. Those are the expectations, right? That has been a shift in expectation. But what did the Federal Reserve say? So Mr. Barkin was the first to talk on Bloomberg about this. And you know what he said about this inflation report, which came in a little hotter than expected? He said, this was expected. Inflation coming down is great. But we expect there to be some volatility because January data reads tend to have huge seasonality adjustments. In other words, the first person from the Federal Reserve, which we have multiple responses from the Fed, but the first person to respond on this hot CPI report from the Federal Reserve says, eh, kind of expected that. What? You almost expected inflation to tick up again because we almost went higher than we went last month. We certainly did on the month over month data. On top of that, you're just going to kind of like brush over January. Is that also what the Federal Reserve believes for jobs? It might be. The Federal Reserve might look and go, eh, you know, one hot jobs report, one hotter CPI report, eh, doesn't really change our forecast. That's pretty incredible. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve still believes that it's important to get inflation under control and that, look, there are obviously still embers that are keeping inflation hot. We know that it's becoming easier to hire people. Chipotle, Starbucks, Uber, Lyft, right? There's more availability of workers. More availability of workers with a similar amount of demand means lower pricing. Lower pricing pressures, lower inflationary pressures, right? Although we did just have retail sales come in ridiculously hot for January. Yet another report that maybe the federal will respond to and say, yeah, it's January. That's what you get in January. I was surprised by that. I was surprised that the Federal Reserve was so sort of uh, but, uh, uh, how should I say this? Uh, uh, passive about the January jobs and January CPI reports. That's interesting. In fact, Barkin went as far as saying, eh, you know, I've got until March 22nd to decide what my projections are going to be for the terminal fed funds rate or otherwise. And since I have until January to, uh, or uh, sorry, until March 22nd, I'm actually going to be getting another inflation report and another, uh, PCE report and maybe even another retail sales report by then anyway. I'll get another employment cost index report, right? We're going to get a lot more data, another labor report. We're still going to get a lot of data before the next Fed meeting on March 22nd, which is still five weeks away from today. So here you have the Fed kind of like, eh, few high reports, doesn't change anything for us. Oh, It means it doesn't change anything, maybe necessarily to the substantial better side. It's not like all of a sudden they're coming out, we win, let's reduce rates. But you do have a Fed that's kind of like, yeah, whatever, kind of expected that. That's really interesting. Lori Logan came out with sort of a scripted speech talking about how we may need to raise rates higher than previously thought. If this sort of data continues, this is more along the lines of what you would expect, right? You would expect the Fed to say, look, I mean, Maybe if the next reports are hot as well, and now it's getting a little harder. Well, then maybe maybe instead of a terminal rate of five to five and a quarter percent, we need to be like five and a quarter to five and a half, or five and a half to five point seven five. Right, that's the potential. Again, right now the curves are showing a Fed term rate uh, sitting somewhere around. Uh, that uh, uh, that 5.26 level. Those are the terminal expectations now, and we when we look at world interest rate probabilities, uh, we are yep yeah, for that, that aligns with about the 5.26 as well. And then you expected a, a, a pause as soon as July now. Originally, markets started pricing in a pause potentially as soon as March. That's been delayed to July. Okay, fine then. We got a little bit uh, of info from Mr. Williams. So Mr. Williams says, hey, you know what? Uh, We actually think uh, the unemployment rate isn't going to be as bad as we originally thought it was. We originally thought unemployment might go up to four and a half to 5%, but now we actually think unemployment is only going to go to potentially four to four and a half percent. In other words, they moved from the upper 4% unemployment range to the lower 4% range. And if they continue on that trend, unemployment might not actually ever even hit 4%, which is kind of wild. And Fed Williams is suggesting this. He's implying that they're going to reduce their unemployment forecast even in the face of these hot reports, which these hot reports you would think would imply the Fed's going to hike more and stay higher for longer, which would induce a recession, which would lead to more unemployment. But even after these hot reports, the Fed's like, yeah, we actually think we'll end up with less unemployment, which is a way of saying we think the odds of a soft landing are improving now fed williams did give us some red flags he suggested that the two red flags we face are european resilience that is more demand from europe leading to potentially inflationary pressures thanks to the warmer winter that we had and less energy pressures but also the chinese reopening but then again if you've been watching my channel at all for the last week you already know that we're not seeing indications that the chinese reopening is going to create a boom in inflation the Chinese aren't really buying uh, and spending the way you would think. In other words, spending like Americans and blowing everything. They're way more moderated in their spending. They have one twelfth of the spending saved up uh, or savings, excess savings saved up than we did after the, our reopening. So we had about $6,000. They have about $500 per person. Uh, we're seeing actually commodity projections go down because people are buying less goods and spending more on travel and entertainment in China, which you would expect. But also, you're not expecting to see the kind of good spending that would really create inflation in China. Certainly, if anything, it would just be more localized rather than exported to the United States or creating some kind of supply chain crisis, which we don't expect. We're not seeing those early signs of. So in other words, Williams is suggesting, yeah, look, supply chain issues are still elevated, but they're coming down. And declines in commodities and goods are already what we're seeing. Obviously, we need to stay higher for longer to make sure we can get those core services down. But there's the impression now, especially with people like Mohammed Alarian, suggesting that we can avert a recession. And Mohammed thinks we're going to probably end up living with like three to four percent inflation, and the Fed will adjust. Now, most people like Ken Rogoff from the uh, uh, Harvard, from Harvard, he's a uh, uh, former IMF chief economist. Now he's a professor over at Harvard. He thinks we're going to end up getting higher for longer to potentially as high as 6% rates and that we're going to end up resetting higher than 2%. Uh, It's unlikely that we'll get to 2%, but it's also unlikely the Fed's going to change their 2% target. Still, though, nobody talks about FATE, which is flexible average inflation targeting, where the Federal Reserve could be okay with 3% for a period of time, on the path to 2%. So they might just say, look, if it takes until 2030 to get to 2%, whatever, that's okay. We'll slowly reduce rates on that trajectory. So these responses from the Federal Reserve were really interesting to me. And I think it's because they're seeing some of these really important charts. One of the first charts that's really important to look at is to look at Liz Young. Uh, She's over from SoFi and I think she shared a really good chart. She wrote this. "Uh, We know from the last CPI report that shelter contributed to half of all of the inflation that we saw in the last cpi report and if you look right next to me here uh, right here there we go that yellow bar represents how much inflation uh, is being created from shelter you can see it's actually most of it and we actually expect that yellow bar is going to flip to below the line in the second half of this year and that's going to drag your black line of overall inflation potentially negative That's going to be a big, big, big deal, and we see that coming. In addition to seeing that coming, which is probably why the Fed's actually kind of responding dovish in the face of these hard uh, numbers, is we do see that core services inflation, while it's still high on a month-over-month basis, it's certainly moderated from what we've seen. This is still in line with about 3.5% annualized inflation. But if you look at 0.29% on a month-over-month basis, it's certainly a lot lower than what we had seen in December, March through June. The first half of 2022 had core uh, uh, like services inflation that was in excess of 04 0.5%. So pretty large bars. And those are finally setting, down, settling down. So really critical uh, response here from the Federal Reserve. And I actually am I'm very impressed with the Fed's response. In that, look, I think they're convinced. As we said earlier, I don't think that Jerome Powell wants to be known as the guy who forces a recession and creates, as his words were, a, quote, tremendous amount of human hardship. He doesn't want to see people lose their jobs. He just wants inflation to come down. And if he could end up proving that inflation ended up being transitory after a few years and sticks a soft landing by preventing a recession and a lot of job loss, This guy will go down in history and people will make statues out of him. And uh, I think he's already plotting where he wants his statue because uh, 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 I think he thinks we can actually pull this off. Now, I know there's a lot of doubt and skepticism in the markets, but I think that's roughly the direction we seem to be on right now, barring other really bad news. Things are looking up, not down. It's pretty good. So that's my take on the Federal Reserve's response. Uh, Let's go ahead and see what we have here in terms of some commentary. Countries will continually become nationalistic. Well, so this is really the argument of uh, deglobalization. I I actually uh, disagree on this one with you, Steve. I I think we've commented back and forth about this before, but maybe we haven't. Uh, I'm a big believer that we're actually going to see re-globalization. Reglobalization is sort of the doubling down of investing in better supply chains, but actually forming new supply chains with new countries, especially countries like uh, India, uh, Taiwan, and countries outside of China, to reduce our dependence specifically on China. So as as we talk about deglobalization, I actually think there'll be a reglobalization, even Mexico, Canada, whatever. So those are some of the thoughts that I, that I have. Uh, at least a statue of him on a bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right let's see here historically unemployment rises slowly yep that's true uh unemployment rising uh well i mean look um, unemployment lags i think is the way to put it unemployment can actually skyrocket very quickly in a recession uh, you could go in a six month period and have the unemployment rate it's happened historically before go from four percent to six percent pretty dang quickly uh, the, the problem with unemployment and a measure of unemployment is that uh, unemployment is, is, very much a lagging indicator. It is by far not a leading indicator. Uh, honestly, you have a good point. I have my emergency fund on my ba- main bank account. And now I, uh, now I recently moved in and I feel broke. <laughs> That's the idea. You put, you should have no money in your bank accounts. You should move that money into investment accounts. So you feel broke. That's the that's the psychological trick. It's a great idea. Like, you should be overdrawing your bank account. People get so mad at me when I say that. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to pay the overdraft fee. If you replenish it the same day, you actually don't. But uh, you don't pay the overdraft fee. But uh, like, let's say you have two bank accounts and let's say your monthly expenses are 5,000 bucks. And let's say in your two bank accounts, you've got like, 6,000 bucks, right? And then you go through your monthly expenses and then all your other money is in in your accounts and then you get paid and you're like really close to the line. And then one of your accounts has 2,000 bucks in it. And then all of a sudden, your your main account goes to like negative 30 bucks. Well, so you just take the 30 bucks out of that that account that has 2,000 bucks in, right? You transfer it over and you balance it out. The glory about that is it makes you feel broke. It makes you feel so bad, like, oh my gosh, I'm such a loser, I overdrew my account. No, it's actually a great way to be, because you have all of your other wealth on a stock brokerage, or an investing company, or in real estate, or whatever. Worst case, if you needed to, you could get some money out of those. But in the interim, it makes you want to spend less money. Psychological tricks, folks, big deal. I sell all my gift cards that people give me. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, That actually works. Paying overdraft makes me feel poor, so I stop spending. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. We can always just give the military less money. Uh, I think you're talking about sort of government debt and spending, huh? Yeah, I don't don't know. I don't know. Do we want to do that? You know, there's there's some... um, talk about ukraine as well we can do a little bit of a a ukraine update uh, a quick one here let's do it so yeah what do we got here Mm -hmm. so there's a usa today piece that's getting a lot of attention regarding ukraine right now and uh ukraine uh, apparently uh, is uh, ceding some ground in the Donbass region. And this is because one of the foreign ministers in Ukraine uh, in an interview suggested that Russia is slowly piece by piece, inch, inch by inch, taking more land. Uh, and the argument really is that the Ukrainians feel almost uh, like in certain regions that they're just getting overwhelmed, that even though they're Person per person winning, right? Like they're they're technically destroying more of the Russian army, more deaths on that side versus on the Ukraine side. It feels as though Russia has sort of this never-ending push and resolve of people move, like coming over, basically. And it's like, my goodness, you're just getting swarmed. It's like the zombie apocalypse. So this was a USA Today piece that got a lot of attention because it it suggested uh, some people used it as a way to weaponize, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and the U.S. military support to say, hey, like, why are we supporting them? They're starting to lose. Now, I don't know if you could necessarily go that far. It's certainly a a very devastating uh, disaster that's happening. But the Financial Times is also preparing uh, multiple uh, sets of, of news articles, and they've been posting these about Russia amassing a massive set of aircraft at the border of Russia and Ukraine. They see a lot of jets and helicopters starting to potentially uh, line up to maybe support the Russian offensive into Ukraine more aggressively, and that could potentially start happening within the next few days. At the same time, there are fears because a new report from uh, a new Norwegian intelligence report was just released and confirmed that Russia has started to deploy tactical nuclear-armed vessels in the Baltic Sea. This is a lot of information. We should start trying to unpackage some of this, but consider this tactical nuclear weapons, first of all, are different. Don't think about like uh, Nagasaki or Hiroshima where you're looking at, you know, 40 to 100,000 people dying in nuclear weapon. You want to think about tacular, uh, tactical nuclear weapons is basically, okay, here's an area where there are maybe... 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers bunkered down in, let's say, a a town that's nearly deserted or whatever. They're using it to launch tactical offensives. It's got a region of maybe two square miles where the Russians uh, or the Ukrainians, rather, are embedded. Well, a nuclear-armed vessel in the Baltic Sea could potentially launch, uh, you know, an intercontinental missile or some sort of uh, a missile carrying a tactical nuke and essentially flatten that entire area without risking one Russian life because what you've done is you've basically just leveled a potentially entire town with a more strategically used nuclear weapon. Now, obviously, this is expected to cross major red lines and would suggest that we're entering into World War III, which Donald Trump has suggested we're already entering World War III. And somebody who called the Soviet war, who was interviewed by, uh, uh, by, by, by some journalists, uh, it, it, it's really not worth going into that rabbit hole because it gets really, really dirty really fast. But basically, th- there are a lot of people who have been studying war for a very long time and say, we're basically already in World War III because you have the U.S., Germany, uh, Poland, Spain, all of these countries supporting the war in Ukraine against Russia and Russia getting support from China. This is almost like the two axes, right? Like in, in, in World War II, you have the axes, right? Uh, it's scary to, to think about that. There's not, nothing funny about it. But anyway, this was... Um, a French historian who predicted the fall of the Soviet Union uh, is, is basically saying we're already at World War III. Uh, but this this talk about using tactical nuclear weapons potentially by Russia has been one that's uh, been elevated and been very scary since the beginning of the war. However, the fact that Norwegian intelligence is now confirming that Russians have deployed tactical nuclear weapon armed vessels in the Baltic Sea, something that they haven't done before, is very nerve wrecking Now, uh, the northern fleet of warships regular, uh, regularly went to sea with nuclear weapons during the Cold War era, but this is the first time the modern Russian Federation has done the same thing. It's the first time, so it's not normal, at least it hasn't been normal since the Cold War, for Russians to actually load tactical nuclear weapons on vessels. So that's scary. At the same time, calls are rising for Germany and other European nations to send more tanks and potentially even jets uh, to uh, the Ukrainian battlefield. You have Germany, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who's actually been pretty pissed off because other countries have been pressuring Germany to send tanks to Ukraine. Now that Germany has decided to do so, Germany's like, well, where are yours? And they're all kind of like, oh, we're backing on it. Uh, Poland, for example, says they'd, they'd send tanks. Now it comes out that Poland is actually saying, yeah, we, we don't actually know if these tanks work that we're sending. So now there's Polish doubt over the operability. The poles are trying to send, uh, to, uh the tanks, uh, the operability of the tanks, the poles are trying to send to Ukraine. That's insane. At the same time uh, uh, as this, you have Germany sending uh, more previously decommissioned Gerard uh, Gerard uh, Jared flakpanzers. Now, these are actually really interesting, the flakpanzers. Flakpanzers are uh, basically tanks that are just designed to take down uh, planes. And with this uh, mounting offensive, uh, essentially setting up of helicopters and airplanes and jets on the border between Russia and Ukraine, you have a lot of talk about more funding and more ammunition uh, being deployed for these puppies right here. So on screen, you can see here a Flakpanzer. Now, these are really interesting because you see the targeting devices right here, but then you've got these large cannons on the side. These are 35 millimeter, which remember millimeter is the width of the bullet, it's like a diameter of a bullet. So 35 millimeters, I mean, you're talking about larger, a little larger than an inch, it's like an inch and a third. Those are pretty dang wide bullets, right? These are, they, they call them cannons, right? These are uh, uh, 35 millimeter cannons, there are two of them. Uh, you also have smoke grenade dischargers over here. They do that so that way, you know, if these vehicles are being targeted by enemy aircraft, the smoke uh, grenades could actually make it potentially more difficult uh, to target these uh, these vehicles. Uh, so these are anti-aircraft weapons, and uh, uh, more and more of these are being delivered to Ukraine. Uh, however, Ukraine is warning about ammo shortages, according to the Financial Times. Uh, uh, the Financial Times is also reporting that Russians, uh, the, the Russian air military, uh, has been relatively quote preserved. In other words, the Russians really haven't started using their, uh, their, their, uh, um, air force yet. And they have a lot of aircraft that they can still use. Now, these are older generation, uh, vehicles that uh, the Russians use. They're not like the new Gen uh, 5s that America uses, like the F-35 jets, uh, or, uh, Gen 6s that are under development. Uh, but they're still good enough to fight Ukraine. And so there are a lot of concerns that this, uh, at the same time as tactical nukes are being uh, moved on vessels in the Baltic Sea, you're starting to see the potential ramp up of a, uh, an aerial Uh, uh, sort of incursion, there are a lot of concerns that uh, Western nations, uh, Europe and the United States, Canada, are going to get even more wrapped into providing more and more advanced weapons. It's almost, and and potentially increasing the odds of an actual world war, right? Because really what happens is, first we send boots, Russia sends, you know, we send boots and bulletproof vests and, and helmets to Ukraine. What do you get? Russians send lots of people. Uh, now, that's not to say they didn't start with, you know, uh, uh, their, uh, part, in part their air force as well. But now we start ramping up. Here are stingers. Here are javelins. Uh, here, are, uh, here are tanks. And so now as we're ramping those up, Russia's ramping up their air force again. And now it's like, okay, well, we'll send anti-aircraft flak Panzas. And now Russia is apparently deploying tactical nukes, according to Norwegian intelligence. It's all escalating. And that's scary, right? It's like you're getting to more and more advanced weaponry. And at some point, you're going to hit that red line where you hit the red line where it's like, okay, do you cross it and start using tactical nuclear weapons? I don't know. I mean, I hope not. But this is scary. Uh, it's, 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 it's very scary what's going on. So uh, it's definitely something to uh, uh, pay attention to and be aware of what's happening. All right. So, uh, with that said, let's go ahead and take a peek at briefly here at what's going on with uh, markets. So, looks like you've got the Nasdaq after that retail sales beat like crazy, relatively stable, down about half percent. Spy down about half percent after that rally yesterday. Trade Desk up fifteen percent. There's some pricing power for you. That's probably the best pricing stour, p- power stock in the. Uh, the advertising space right now and, and that's despite all the red flags I mean I was really expecting uh, you know uh, uh, a bad report uh, it's still a company I would have invested in but I was I was not expecting um, uh, that uh, this kind of beat so it'll be really interesting we'll go through this and Airbnb and the course member live stream we'll go through the fundamentals of these and we'll do some Q;A and uh, so uh, with that said, if you want to get lifetime access to the programs on Building Your Wealth, check out the link down below, 69% off flash sale. And folks, we will see you in the next one. Appreciate y'all being here. Hope you enjoyed Meet Kevin Report 24. I'm live every single day, including days the market is closed, which means Saturdays, Sundays, I'm waking up at 3 a.m. to provide this value for you. And if you liked it, consider sharing it. Thanks so much. Goodbye.